Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. For those of you that we've not met yet, why uh, I'm Dave Bycroft, my wife Kathy, Luke's mom and dad, and Derek's grandpa and grandma and Dylan and Kendall's and it's just good to be able to be with you today and to be able to share with you. Um, and Jared talking to me about uh, where you're all studying, he says uh, the gospel of Mark and the humanity of Jesus. Now Luke messed up last week if you were here and jumped a couple of chapters. I'm going to jump a whole bunch of chapters. <laughs> and we're going, <clears throat> we're going down to Mark chapter 14 today. <clears throat> And it's really a message that sets up Jared's message for next week on the resurrection of Christ. Now normally when I would begin a sermon, you always have kind of a funny story or a stupid joke to tell, just kind of connect with people. But this sermon does not lend itself to doing that. This sermon is on a man of sorrows. And I think you know who his name is. In fact, when you go through the Gospels, all four Gospels never record an incident where Jesus laughed. Not one time. Now, I would pretty well believe that there were times that he did. It's just never recorded. What is recorded for us or a couple of places in John chapter 11 when it says Jesus wept. And then in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus is going to the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And he looks down over the city of Jerusalem and he says that he just had a heart of compassion for those people because they were lost and sheep without a shepherd. And it said Jesus wept over the city. Now I believe that the Gospels are trying to present the idea that we are to understand Jesus' mission, Jesus' purpose in being here wasn't to be fun and games. It wasn't to be laughter and frivolity. Jesus' purpose for being here was to come and give himself for all of us that we might have a home in eternal life. He truly was a man of sorrows. And you're going to see this in this text today. There's, there's uh, five different words in this text that represent Jesus as a man of sorrows. And so would you begin reading with me in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 14. And let's dissect these different aspects of Jesus being a man of sorrows. We start in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, he's talking to his disciples, you will all fall away because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, 
that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Now the first word that represents Jesus as a man of sorrows, his humanity, would be the word shock. This is a shocking statement. These are the hand-picked men that Jesus brought alongside of him for three and a half years and poured himself into these men and for him to make the statement, you're going to all fall away from me. Shocking statement. The very people that he ought to be able to count on the most are going to run and flee. The shocking statement even goes a little further when Peter, in all of his brashness, stands up and says, Well, all the rest of these 11 guys may flee, but not me. I'll stick with you to the death. Shocking statement. No, Peter. Tonight, you're going to deny me three times. What a shocking thought. I think Jesus, though he knew that aspect, it had to be shocking even for him to say that out loud to this man that he had handpicked to become the guy that was going to preach the first gospel sermon in the church, and he had to say out loud, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. It was shocking beyond belief. And what you should know and understand as we look at this statement in this shocking venue of the disciples all giving up and running away is this simple fact. The devil's trying to do the same thing to every one of us in this room. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now it's easy in this room to keep our thoughts right and our actions right and our attitudes right. But the moment we step out that door, we begin to have those temptations that could bring us down. And you could sit here like Peter and say, Oh, not me. <laughs> the rest of these folks in here, they might fall, but not me. Sad turn of events because it doesn't take very long to remember the last time you failed. Thank God for communion, huh? Just to be reminded that we have been cleansed and purified and made right by the blood of Jesus Christ. But you know what? There's something in this shocking statement that most people would miss. There's something here that Jesus is actually saying, yet... I'm going to give you some help. Look back in verse 28 and see if you don't catch what he says there. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. What's Jesus saying there? See how you're going to fail. You're going to fall down. You're going to do the very thing you don't want to do. But I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to help you back up. I'm going to 
meet you again. And I'm going to prepare you for the job that you have of beginning the church here on this earth. And Jesus would say the same thing to all of us. It might be shocking to you sometimes when you have personally failed and you thought, I'd, I thought I'd never do anything like that. I thought that'd be the last thing in the world I would ever choose to do. And Jesus said, let me help you back up. Every time we fail, if we look to him, he's going to be there for us. And he's going to help us to overcome all of those failures. The second word in this text that represents Jesus is the word sorrow. Man of sorrows. Look in verse 32. He says, And they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here and, until I've prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. In our other Gospels, he also uses the word watch and pray. You, you, you need to watch and pray because I'm going to go because of this deep sorrow in my life. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. Now the question here is, why is Jesus in deep distress? Well, the human answer would always be first, because he's going to be nailed to a cross. I mean, he's going to be beaten within an inch of his life with a cat of nine tails. Thirty-nine times they're going to rip open his back until he can expose all of his muscles and even bone. That'd be enough, wouldn't it? That's not the answer to it. It's not the nailing to the cross that Jesus was distressed over. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do what? The joy set before him, he endured the cross. Where in the world did that come? Where could there be any joy in that cross? Jesus looked at it as his ticket to go back to the Father. Jesus looked at it as, I've done my job. Jesus looked at it for all of us and said, I've provided the way of redemption. And in his mind, the cross was a place of joy. So what was the distress over? I think if you examine the Gospels close enough, you would understand pretty quickly that the distress of the cross is Jesus becoming sin. You, you know that's what happened on the cross. You know he isn't just suffering physically and bleeding and dying on the cross. He is accepting the sin of all mankind. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, In him who knew no sin, God made him to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You remember some of the words of Jesus hanging on the cross? One phrase that he cried out, My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why was that? Why was it that Jesus was forsaken by God? Because this is the only time in all of eternity since the existence of God that Jesus and God were separated and they were separated because Jesus became a sinner hanging on that cross. Not his sin. Nothing he did, nothing he said, no attitude he had. It was our sin that was laid upon him. And at that point, God will not cohabit with sin. And God and Jesus, for the only time in eternity, were separated. And do you know, that's the only time in all of the Gospels where it records Jesus calling him God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other place, in fact, just a few sentences before that, he says, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And good news, it didn't remain. He paid for sin, and he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But during that moment, however long it was, and I have no idea, and we won't know until eternity, Jesus was separated from God and God was separated from His Son because the sin of all the world was placed upon Jesus and that distressed Jesus. To become sin. The very antithesis of everything that He was. To become sin. And there was deep sorrow that he had to become that sinner. The third word in our text is the word supplication that we understand to be prayer. Look, look in verses 35 and 36. He says there, And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground, and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The prayer of Jesus is kind of an amazing thing. If you add to this, especially the Gospel of Matthew, you realize there's three different times that this takes place. Jesus goes off by himself for a ways and he prays. And his first prayer was, Lord, if it's possible... Take this cup from me. I don't want to drink the cup of sin. I don't want that to be what I have to indulge in. Take it away. But, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He goes back and he finds the disciples sleeping. And then he goes back one more time and he prays again the, sec the second time. But this time he changes his prayer just a little bit. And he just simply says... If it's not possible, then thy will be done. And he goes away a third time after seeing the disciples asleep, and he prays the third time, and he prays something similar. I want you to understand that prayer changes me. We all the time are talking about prayer changes things, and it does. But more than that, prayer changes me. 
It gets me in line with God's will. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He starts out praying, remove this cup. But because he wanted God's will, he came back the second time and he says, okay, if it's not possible to remove this cup, your will be done. Let, let's accomplish what you want done. And prayer even changed the heart of Jesus from take it away to, okay, I, I'm good with this. And that's what we do when we pray correctly. We're praying for God and His will to be brought into our lives. You know, Jesus was being tempted at this point to escape the cross. Now, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, we have the temptations of Jesus where the, he goes and, and he spends 40 days in fasting and prayer. And it says that the devil came to him and the devil tempted him. You, you remember the temptations. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And he says, look at that stone down there. Doesn't that just remind you of a fresh loaf baked bread? Why don't you just turn that rock into bread and eat it? You're surely hungry enough to do that, and you've got the power to do that. And Jesus said, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and thus it's written in your word, God's word. Well, the devil takes him up to the highest point of the temple, and he says, look down there. See all those people down there? You know what? If you would jump off. And did, did you ever notice that the devil can quote scripture too? Because he quoted right out of the book of Psalms. And he says, why, he'll give his angels in charge of you. And you won't even stub your toe on a cobblestone down there. And Jesus says, it's written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. A third time, the devil takes him up to a high mountain. He says, you see all the lands of the earth? You see all of these kingdoms? You see all of these people groups and everything? I tell you what, you bow down, worship me, and I'll just step out of the way, and it's all yours. I, I'll never be a problem to you ever again. This time, Jesus gets a little rougher, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Because it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then it says this, the devil left him for an opportune time. Now, there may have been other opportune times between that temptation at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and now down at the end of his ministry. There may have been others. But you can definitely know and understand that Jesus is being tempted to find a way out, to not go through the cross, to give in. And his power to overcome that was through the quoting of the Word of God in Matthew chapter 4. And here we see that his power to overcome temptation was to pray and beseech the Father for his will to be done. Do you catch that? Here's two things that you and I can do. Jesus could stand up and say, I'm the son of God, devil, get out of here. Now, who, who among us could say that? Not a one of us. But you know what he did do? He quoted scripture. Anybody in here can quote scripture? Think you could use the word of God to help you in the middle of temptation? 
He used the very thing that we can use. And prayer? Anybody in here can't pray? Jesus is saying, you want to handle temptation? You want to overcome? Then, then use these weapons against the devil. Use supplication to overcome all that the devil is trying to do in your life. And you know in Ephesians chapter 6 it says that very thing when he says put on the whole armor of God that you can stand against all the, the schemes of the devil. And he says take the word of God, take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. He, he gives all of this um, not weaponry, but all of the, the things that you can put on as armor to stand against all the, the devil's arrows. And then he says, he gives him one weapon. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I would bet some of you, along with myself, have some ongoing temptations that seem to be pretty similar and come back around, they cycle back around. And one of the best things you could do is learn some scriptures that deal with that kind of temptation so that when that temptation comes, you can readily quote the word of God and defeat the devil with your sword. But then in verse 18 it says, with all prayer, praying for the saints and one another. And so he says, the sword of the Spirit in one hand, prayer in the other hand, and you have the two weapons to defeat the devil in every case. And Jesus proved it worked for him. In Matthew 4, quoting the Word of God, worked for him. Here in Mark chapter 14, prayer, beseeching God, praying as if it were sweat, drops of blood coming down his face. That's pretty intense prayer. When was the last time you prayed and even sweat, let alone sweat drops of blood? Jesus was intense here. And because of his intensity, we find that he was able to overcome that temptation. And then the next word's a sorry, sorry word. The word sleep. You know what the disciples were doing. There in verse 37, it says, And he came and he found them sleeping. He said, Wait here, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Instead, they fall asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Can you not watch with me one hour? And he repeats that two more times. Sleeping instead of praying. How many of you uh, sleep until the very last possible second before you get up of the morning and then you have to rush through the morning, you have to rush to work, you have to rush to school, and there's no time to pray? You know, we could point the finger at the disciples and say, Peter, James, and John, good grief. He's just told you he's going to die. He's just told you that you're all going to fall away. Why in the world don't you line up and get on your knees and beseech God for help? We can point the finger at them and say, boy, if that had been me, I'd have been right there praying for Jesus. Well, look at your life. How well do you pray? How important is it for you when you get up of a morning 
to contact God first and to bring your requests before Him for His strength and for His... Here's here's the thing. The disciples were self-confident. I'll never fall away. They were prideful in themselves, and so instead of praying, they were sleeping. And then in the hour of temptation, they failed. They all ran away. It created sin and disaster in their life because they didn't pray. Look at Jesus. Jesus prayed, and with his prayer came the humility to say, Not my will, but thine be done. And the temptation came, and Jesus overcame the temptation. The temptation brought submission. The overcoming of the temptation brought submission, and with the submission brought strength for Jesus to be able to endure everything that he endured. That brings us to the last word in the text. And it is the word strength. To be able to have the strength. I love this part of the story. I, I, I just am overcome by this part of the story. <clears throat> Look in uh, verse 41 and 42. And he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Do you see this unfolding? Do you see the scene? Disciples sleeping and Jesus comes. He finds them all sleeping. He says, get up. Let's go. It's time. Let's do what God has called me to do. Where'd that strength come from? Well, it didn't come because he was sleeping during this time. It didn't come because he went and found his last meal and ate his favorite meal before he was going to die. It came because he sought God. You know, at the very beginning of Mark, and my guess is Jared may have already covered this in one of the sermons earlier. In Mark 1.35, it said this about Jesus. Jesus arose a great while before day and he went to a lonely place and there he prayed. Now, here we're talking about the perfect Son of God. We're talking about Jesus, the eternal God, had to take time to pray. He had to separate himself. You know, if he'd have waited till later in the morning, you know what would happen. You follow him through the Gospels, just as soon as everybody woke up and found out that Jesus was around, he gets inundated with people. I mean, he's overcome with people the whole time. And so in order to have time alone with the Father, Jesus had to get up before anybody else got up. And he had to go to a place where there was nobody there because he knew he needed to have time with God. Now, who in the world do we think we are that we don't need time with God? And I'm not talking about Sunday morning church. I'm talking about your everyday life, beginning your day with God. Where did Jesus get his strength? Because he began every day with God. 
and he got that strength in the hour of trouble. Do you know that Jesus could have gone free? You remember the story, and it'll unfold a little farther. All the chief priests and the soldiers come out there with clubs and torches and spears and swords, and they come out there, and Jesus uh, is kissed on the cheek by uh, uh, the famous Judas, and Jesus says this, Whom do you seek? You remember what the Bible says happened to all of those guys, all the soldiers and everybody? What? Remember what that happened? They all fell on the ground. They had no power in front of Jesus whatsoever. They had no ability to take him captive unless he submitted. Jesus got his strength from God. He could have walked free, but instead he submitted himself to what God had called him to do to accomplish for all the world to come to know a Savior. You know, as we rehearse these words that we've talked about, you've probably got some friends who've done you wrong. I know our family, extended family, has gone through some pretty rough difficulties recently. And some people have done them wrong. And my guess is there's some of you sitting in here this morning that somebody has done you wrong. Somebody you counted on. Somebody you thought was in your corner. And they did you wrong. What are you going to do about it? You going to fight back? You going to call them out? You're going to cut off the friendship. You're going to seek God. Seek His help. Facing difficult situations. Things that you can't even see a solution available. How in the world do we get through this? How do we get beyond it? It might be a financial problem or a relationship problem. It, it, it could be a, a number of things that have come your way. A health problem. And what are you going to do about it? You're going to cry out to God, how come, God, you let this come our way? Why, why don't you do something about this, God? Or are you going to have the heart of humility that says, your will be done. Not my will. But your will be done. Pouring out your heart to God. For the very thing that you need and that you're going to trust Him for. Rather than running, as Jared talked about in the communion, running to some person with no spiritual connection whatsoever, but trying to get advice from them, doesn't make much sense, does it? For me, a child of God, to get advice from a child of the devil. Where are you going to seek your spiritual direction? Don't allow the physical to overcome your spiritual. You know, in the life of Joseph, his brothers did him wrong. You know that story. A terrible thing. His own blood did him wrong. But in the end of things, when it was all turned around and Joseph was made the ruler of Egypt, 
and his brothers were scared to death that now he's going to take revenge. You remember the words of Joseph to his brothers? You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. That's a heart that you can only get when you're seeking the Lord like Jesus did. You can't get that heart anywhere else. You're not able to stand in this world and be able to comfort yourself without having the heart that says, yeah, the world meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. As we close out this part of the life of Christ, you can understand why He is a man of sorrows, taking upon Himself the sins of all the world. But you know what? Until you submit to Jesus, until you ask Him to become the Lord of your life and repent of your sins and are baptized into Christ, that sacrifice of Jesus doesn't apply to you. You might wish it would. You might think it would be nice. But until you make the decision, it doesn't apply to you. And this would be my words to you. Don't waste the sacrifice of the man of sorrows. Don't waste it. It's available. It's for you. And he's just waiting on you to come to Jesus. I don't know where some of you are at. Hopefully every one of you have done that, but my guess in a crowd this size, there's somebody or somebodies that have yet to surrender to Jesus. And if you'd like to take that thought a little farther in your life, then I would suggest you get a hold of Jared or somebody else that you spiritually trust and say, it's time. I need Jesus. I want Jesus. Give me Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this message, we are so thankful and grateful that Jesus saw the cross as a point of joy. And Father, when I look at my life, I hate the fact that my sin was laid on Jesus. But I am grateful that He's taken that away and has given me the hope of everlasting life because I have surrendered to Him. I pray that every person in this room either has or will surrender themselves to this man of sorrows who died in our place. We pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.